Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Last few weeks, I've been starting the way I will start now. I'm learning to embrace my status as a beloved beginner. And so that is my going assumption for you as well, that you are a beloved beginner. And so with that, let's begin together, if it's okay. Last week, we began a six-week pilgrimage toward Christ the King Sunday. Christ the King Sunday here at All Souls is our rule of life Sunday. It's a Sunday when some of us will reaffirm, some of us will affirm, and some of us will watch both of those groups come forward to affirm or reaffirm our rule of life. And so over the next six weeks, we're sitting with our rule, which we'll get to here in a moment. It's printed on the inside of your bulletin this morning. I've heard that, and there's a lot more teachers and professors and others who are in uh, some form of teaching profession, so you can come up after and tell me if I'm wrong on this, but I have heard that uh, repetition is the mother of all learning. And so for the sake of repetition, to remind us a rule is simply a trellis for a specific kind of life. And when we speak of life, in the Greek, there's two different kinds of life. There's bios life, which is life that is degradable. But in the Greek, there's also zoe life, it's eternal life, life with God. And not just some far off version of life and what we would think of when we think of heaven, but an eternal here and now kind of life. And so our rule of life in that framework, as we spoke about last week, our rule of life is a trellis for an eternal kind of life. It's a trellis if you choose to attach your life to it, to grow in the midst of it for an eternal kind of life. Now, you might again ask, well, what do we mean when we say an eternal kind of life? We're not talking about some sweet by and by. We're talking about what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. What Jesus will speak to in the upper room discourse in John 14 through 17, which we read from just a few moments ago. An eternal kind of life is summarized in the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus gives us to pray. 57 words in the Greek. And within those 57 words fit the entire cosmos. An eternal kind of life is the reality of Psalm 23, which is much more than just a psalm to be memorized as a child, but actually sort of captures for us in a simple prayer what it means to say yes to the availability of God's kingdom. I'll put my cards on the table, friends. I actually think Psalm 23 is possible in this life, here and now. To be laid down in green pastures, to be led beside still waters. To walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not alone, but with a God who is with me and with you. In fact, every time I enter the hospital room, the hospice room, the funeral home, my going assumption is not that I'm going to ask God to be there, but I am going curious to how God already is. 
an eternal kind of life. And the way this year I'm inviting us to think about it is through the metaphor of a pilgrimage. And I talked about last week that a pilgrimage is not a walk, it's not a trek, it's not a march, it's not even a form of wandering tourism. A pilgrimage is a movement toward something. And for us, it's a movement little by little deeper into God, into ourselves, and into the community of fellow pilgrims. And in the Christian tradition, one of the central images that is oftentimes used for a pilgrimage is that of a scallop shell. I'm wearing one today, and it's on the screen behind me. If you've ever been on the Camino, which is a long pilgrimage in Spain, you know that these are everywhere. In fact, you receive one at the beginning and another one again at the end. This is about a pilgrimage deeper into God's life, deeper into the life of God's friends. And last week, as we were reading through our rule together, there's a word that begins every single stanza of the four stanzas. Does anyone remember what that word is? Because. Because. And what we talked about last week is that our rule of life is in response to something. That's why every single stanza begins with the word because. And our rule of life is in response to a few things. First of all, it's in response to Jesus' call to rethink our strategy for life. That's what he meant by repentance. Repent, the kingdom of God is available. To rethink our thinking, to rethink our strategy for life. The way I phrased it last week is to turn away from the project you call your life and turn toward God's project he calls your life. Our rule of life is in response to the availability of God's kingdom and the invitation to rethink our strategy for living. We all have one. It's also in response to the very life of the triune God who is boundless mystery of the God who is Christ-like, and in him there is no un-Christ-likeness at all. And the God who is present and active. Our rule of life, trellis for an eternal kind of life, is also in response to the good news of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is radically available here and now, that another kind of life is available to me and to you. In fact, I would argue that one of the central claims our rule of life makes, like any good rule of life, is that you and I can actually become like Christ. I believe that. We can actually become like Christ. And we do that by following him in the overall style of life that he chooses for himself. And so with all of that, would it be all right if we read our rule of life together? If you will look inside of your bulletin, again, you'll see in the bottom left-hand corner the image Jeremy Cherry designed for our rule of life that is our church's logo inside of a dogwood blossom. And there you'll find the first of four stanzas. And so with all of that, let's listen Because we are a community in the way of Jesus, we commit to be obedient to Jesus, submitting to him as Lord over our life, including our money, our sexuality, and our power. Because the Trinity forms us as a people designed for relationship, we commit ourselves to generous hospitality, 
by living with one another in tangible expressions of community. Because the gospel renews everything, beginning by awakening our hearts to true life, we will open ourselves to see and hear God, allowing God to restore our mind, our body, and our soul. Because the kingdom of God rules over everything, we will join God's work of bringing shalom to our home, to Charlottesville, and to the world. Amen. Uh, This, uh, in fact, yesterday, almost at this past weekend, but actually yesterday, we went with some very close friends of ours uh, to a corn maze. I'm not going to make you raise your hand if you love corn mazes, but I will say I don't. I got a few raised hands. I don't. It's nothing against corn mazes. It's just corn mazes play into every deep-seated childhood fear I have, (laughs) like just every one of them. So if you like them, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying it's me. It's not you. Uh, But thankfully, and we had with our friends six kids under the age of 10. So now my childhood fears are playing out into parental fears. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's so, you can see it, right? I can physically, I'm just going to give myself a hug, right? Thankfully, the corn maze yesterday had three levels of difficulty. And with six kids under the age of 10, we went with the lowest level of difficulty. And so there was not much getting lost you could do. And yet still it was like, hey, stay close, no running, stay close, right? And one of the things that was so brilliant about it, because obviously that part is created for those of us with littles, is the way in which they kept the children engaged. Because if you've ever been in a corn maze, there is not much to look at other than corn, and a lot of it. It's everywhere, and it all looks the same. It's so terrifying to me. And I love corn. I love corn tortillas. I love popcorn, all of it, but just not, yes, okay, you get it. And so, of course, with kids, like, there's only so long that this is going to keep them engaged. And so the brilliance of this place was one of the ways that they kept them engaged was through a story. There was a story along the way, and we had to find the different signs in order to find out. There were a few dad jokes along the way, which I really appreciated. But there was this story that we followed. And it was a very powerful way to keep these kids engaged well beyond what would have normally kept them engaged engaged. Now, I'm going to see how many of us are paying attention. Oftentimes when we go to read scripture readings here at All Souls, there is a line or there's a phrase that we say before our Old Testament reading and before our gospel readings that we say almost every single time. With the Old Testament reading, we often say, these are the stories of God's first pursuit of us. Before our gospel reading this morning, I said, this is the gospel. It is the It is the story of God. And I don't think I have to convince many people in here that story is one of the most powerful inventions in the world. PR firms know this. Advertisement agencies know this. In fact, the stories most advertisement agencies tell us are ones of scarcity, almost always story of scarcity. You don't have enough. You are not enough. And so war propaganda tells us this. Sitting with one another story tells us this. And I think one of the tools that we need, especially in this moment of time, is the tool of skepticism. The tool of skepticism. Here's what I mean by that. I think one of the things I think we need to be asking often is what story am I being told? 
What story am I being invited to live in? What story am I living in? And what story am I telling? What story are others telling me? And I think it's the same with our rule of life. And I want to invite you to ask those questions this morning about our rule of life. What story am I being told? What story am I being invited to live into? What story am I telling? The phrase because, as we talked about last week and again this morning, is a response to God's actions. And God's actions, like our actions, flow out of who God is. And as I mentioned last week, my journey over the last five years has been healing my images of God, repainting my images of God. Some others have called it water to wine, anxiety to rest. For me, my journey has best been captured by Rowan Williams' statement, as they most often are, quote, I've come to know the God of the Gospels, the God of Jesus, the God Jesus is, unquote. I've come to know the God of the Gospels, the God of Jesus, and the God Jesus is. And so here's what I want to do in the next few minutes that I have left, is to offer you two different stories. I did not write these stories. These stories are not my own. In fact, they come from a wonderful little book by a man named Gary Moon. He is a professor. He's written a lot on the integration of psychology, theology, and spiritual formation. If you've ever done spiritual direction training, he has a textbook that he's written on it that is a lot of people's go-to for that. He's one of my teachers this semester. And it's two stories that he describes, and I would, I would agree, have had the most impact on his life and the most impact on my life. And they are two different stories that have had a significant impact on the entire church. One of the uh, houses we lived in, uh, in Maryland, in fact, it was the first house we ever bought, had a beautiful backyard, had a giant oak tree covered in English ivy. (laughs) And so therefore, half of our yard was covered in English ivy. And so before we could do anything to our backyard, do you know what we had to do? We spent a year clearing out English ivy. It's beautiful, but it is invasive. And I would submit to you that these two stories, if either one of these were to take root in your heart, it would become invasive and sets the trajectory for the path you will walk. One of these stories I don't like, and one of these stories I do. And one of these stories I think our rule of life springs out of, and one of these stories I don't think it does. So if it's all right, I'm going to read these stories. Is that okay? kind of wish one of you would have said no, and then we just kind of shake it up a little bit, but that's fine. That's fine. No, no, no. It's too late. It's too late. It's too late. Here's the first story. In the first story, God creates two naked people without belly buttons and places them in a garden. It's not real clear why he does this, but there is good news. They are naked. I may have already mentioned that. And their primary job is to be fruitful and multiply. One day, while taking a break from multiplying and naming the animals, the woman, influenced by a talking snake, tricks the man into taking a bite from an apple, and all hell breaks loose. God is surprised and then becomes extremely angry. 
He curses them, every dog, cat, rock, leaf, and Chicago Cubs fan. It's him, not me. The entire universe, in fact, and each of the seven billion plus and counting descendants who will follow. Through many millennia, God stews in his wrath. He does write down a few instructions and occasionally sends a plague, prophet, or flood to keep folk in line. But mostly, he just sits around on a throne looking a lot like Charlton Heston and scowls down through the glass-bottom floor of heaven as he thinks of new ways to make humans behave. And then finally, when he can take it no more, he sends his own son to be tortured and then brutally murdered. While there was a lot of theories about why God's son had to die, the bottom line is this. It somehow caused God to feel a whole lot better about things and helped him to decide what any, that anyone who hears what Jesus did and says a magic phrase will once again get to live forever and enjoy paradise. And for those who don't say the incantation, they will burn in flames for all of eternity. Don't say the right words and your fate will be more grotesque, a more grotesque horror than could be conjured up by a committee comprised of Nero, a Salem witch trial judge, Hitler, and Genghis Khan. I don't like that story. That's the story I was told. That's a story a lot of my friends are walking away from currently, and I'm here to cheer it on. Because who is God is that story? Who are you? Who are you? What is life with? Talk about life with God. Do you even want to be with God to do life, to have life? That's a story that was used by Christians to justify murder and genocide of other people and other Christians. That is the story, beloved, that has been used to justify slavery, the church. Story matters. Do you want me to read the second story yet? Yeah. (laughs) No knows that time. In the second story, God exists in a loving community of three whose relationship is so joyful, pulsating, and vibrant that it has been described as a dance. God decides that this is all too wonderful to keep to himself, so he creates an entire universe and tenderly places humanity at the center like the offspring of proud parents brought home to a nursery. Then God does something even more amazing. He plants within the human heart a small but glorious piece of himself. Under his watchful eye, these two creatures are to grow into beings who will become as much like God as possible. They are to join the dance and become partners with the Trinity. But the very first two make a fatal decision. They decide that they can live unplugged from the tree of life the presence and the energy of God, and can, in fact, be God themselves. God is not surprised. In fact, he saw this day coming, even as he was knitting them together. You can't surprise someone who lives outside the boundaries of time. And he is not angry. He is not angry. He does, however, become very sad at the separation and the reality of free will play out before his eyes. He sets in motion a series of plans to woo us back home, 
refusing to give up on his original plan to be a nurturing parent to his precious children, showing them how to grow their character until it mirrors his own. Through the passing millennia, God becomes the prodigal father, standing by his driveway, straining his neck, waiting for his children to come home. He sends cards and letters, patriarchs and prophets with the same message. Your inheritance is waiting. The promises can still be cashed. Come home. I want you to be home. I want to be with you. I want to teach you what it is to dance. But when it becomes clear that they will not come home for longer than a brief visit, God can wait no longer. He empties himself of divine dignity and wades into the murk and sits down in the mire alongside his prodigal children, becoming as much like us as possible for a while so that we can learn to be like him forever. Jesus brings the good news that the doors of the kingdom are open and wide and that the Trinity still wants us to join the dance, to become as one with them as they are with each other. And he inhales death and separation into himself and shows through the gruesome image of crucifixion what it looks like to freely die to all that is separate from the will of God. And he demonstrates through his resurrection that he knows what he's talking about. But that's not all. He sends Holy Spirit with music and a dance chart so that we can learn how to waltz with the Trinity. Even now, as we wait for the real party to begin. I like that story. Because who is God in that story? Who are you? Which one sounds like Jesus? And I mean that. Like carries the tone and the tenor of who we know Jesus to be. Because beloved, that second story is not a response because we don't like the first, so we'll write our own. We wrote the first story because we didn't like the second one. That's the story that was written because we didn't like the God who was revealed as boundless mystery, as boundless mercy. And so we have created doctrine and theology and institutions and systems to ward off a story we think we've written that is actually the story God has written. And there are traditions and pockets within the church that have never abandoned that story. It's not new. This is an ancient, old story. And it's a story that took on flesh in Jesus. Which one sounds like good news? We don't get to redefine what good news is. Good news is either good news or it's not. Hey, guess what? I drained your bank account. It's good news. Trust me. That's like Spiritual gaslighting. Like it's not, we don't get to redefine it. I live like I do sometimes, but we don't actually get to. Good news is either good news or it's not. Love is either love or it's not. The story we live matters. 
Imagine both of those stories becoming invasive. One of, the stu- one of the questions I asked the elders when I was interviewing for this job is what kind of family will we become if we're a part of this community? Who will we become? Our rule of life at its best is rooted in that second story. It gives us a framework to learn how to dance. To see God for who God actually is. To see our neighbor, whether we think they are friend or enemy, for who they actually are. Because in that second story, pray for your enemies makes sense. In the first story, it doesn't. In the first story, it's slander and destroy your enemies. That's what most makes sense in that first story. In the second story, it only makes sense to pray. It matters, beloved. It matters. I've gone too long but I feel like there may be space for a short poem. Is that okay? It's a poem written by Joe Whelan. I think that might be the kids going, are we, I think it literally is going, hey, are we done? You can tell them yes, Caleb. Listen to this. Nothing is more practical than finding God, than falling in love in a quite absolute final way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination will affect everything. It will decide what will get you out of bed in the mornings, what you do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, whom you know, what breaks your heart, and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. Fall in love, capital L. Stay in love, and it will decide everything, everything. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.